Today's guest is an RN, a board-certified patient advocate, and she is going to be a contributor to the book, The Patient Safety Anthology, I've been telling you about, titled Highway to Heart, Humor, and Honesty in Healthcare, due to be published late spring and early summer. She is Terry Dreyer, an RN with 36 years of experience, is a pioneer in the emerging field of professional patient advocacy, as well as an Amazon best-selling author and public speaker. And her book is titled Patient Advocacy Matters, the ultimate how-to guide to protect your health, your rights, your life, and your loved ones in today's era of modern healthcare. With a lifelong passion to keep the patient at the center of the nursing care model, Terry established Ensure Patient Advocates in 2011, one of the first professional patient advocate organizations in Chicagoland, and now the largest. With critical care, cardiovascular, and home-based nursing experience, Terry has collaborated with physicians and ancillary healthcare team members at some of the country's premier hospitals. She believes in the benefits of improved communication between patients and providers and is committed to helping patients navigate acute illnesses and reducing medical error. Terry has been awarded numerous times from local civic and business organizations for her dedication to social causes and her business success. She is a sought-after speaker who easily connects with her audience and explains complex medical conditions in simple terms. And I am just so happy to share her with you today. So welcome to the show, Terry. Well, thank you, Pat. It's an honor to be here. It is an honor to have you here. So, Terry, before we begin to pick your brain, especially for uh, topics regarding the book, how did you go from critical care and cardiovascular nursing to patient advocacy? Well, that's a great question. That was a real turning point in my life. Actually, about three different things happened. It was in the early 2010-11 era, and hospitals were getting ready and implementing a lot of the changes that the Affordable Care Act brought um, to hospitals, which really resulted in uh, a lot of extra documentation for care providers. And some of the documentation just seemed to be superfluous. I was really worried that the nurses and doctors were going to be taken away from the patient's bedside, and that is, in fact, what happened. It was very frustrating for doctors and nurses, and um, a lot of people retired early and were just really frustrated that they couldn't spend as much time with patients as they wanted to. And about that time, our family went on a 50th anniversary cruise for my in-laws, and my father-in-law had a medical crisis on the ship. It's a long story, but the end result was that um, I stood guard over him for about six weeks, both in the Caribbean, back in the U.S., transferring to larger tertiary care centers, and um, I just caught a lot of almost um, medical catastrophes. Um, he was in intensive care five times. He had seven interventional procedures. He almost bled to death four times. He um, had all kinds of complications and, and procedures, and it was just a really frightening time for our, our family. And I usually do not walk into any hospital and tell people that I'm a former ICU nurse because um, they, they assume certain things. ICU nurses sometimes are seen as 
permadonnas. We think we know everything, um, but we're used to working with the sickest of the sick patients. And so I'm usually pretty quiet when it's a family member. I just sit back and watch and see how um, my family members are talked to and treated. And I just ask a lot of really probing questions. So that was really frightening. My father-in-law did survive that um, six-week nightmare at 76 years old, and he's still alive today. And that just really showed me what families are going through today. Shortly after that, I came back to work in intensive care, and I was almost fired for advocating for a patient. It was a very, very dear patient that I had taken care of for six weeks every day when I came to work, and she was a just a lovely person. Um, she's an African-American, highly educated banker from Chicago and had just a lovely family. And this woman just kept having one bleeding episode after another. And um, the doctor really wasn't doing what I thought was due diligence to figure out where the bleeding was coming from and what could be done to stop further episodes of bleeding. So after the third episode where she had to get transfused multiple um, units of blood, I said, Doctor, help me understand why you're not sending her for X, Y, and Z testing. I mentioned a few tests and where you think the bleeding is coming from. Well, he got very defensive, almost threw a chart at me. And the next day he transferred the patient out of intensive care and she was not ready or stable enough to transfer out of intensive care, but he didn't want um me questioning him. Later on that afternoon, uh, a family member came up and just threw herself into my arms and said, Terry, you have to do something. My mom's bleeding. Well, long story short, I got the patient transferred back to ICU. She um, had a cardiac arrest from low blood loss. We did a four-hour code on her and had to put her on life support. A few days after that, the doctor had had his um, assistants, his his mid-level practitioners go through the chart, and they found out that during that four-hour code, I was in a rush to give her some pain medication, and I had, had inadvertently forgotten to scan out the medication at her bedside because I was checking blood. And so they pulled me off the unit and basically took me to occupational health and made me do a urine drop. They were essentially accusing me of being a drug-abusing nurse, and I was just livid, Pat. I thought, if this is what modern healthcare has come to, I do not want to have anything to do with healthcare in a place where nurses can't advocate for their patients. Oh my gosh, my my jaw is dropping here. You, you were punished for doing the right thing. Right, I was. So it made me so mad, it catalyzed me to go out and take a course in patient advocacy. I started my business in 2011, and it's been enormously successful in the Chicagoland area. In fact, a few months ago, I even started a, a nonprofit branch so that we can do sliding scale and reach people of lower incomes and a lot of senior orphans that don't really have a lot of um, resources. And um, we also do power of attorney for health care and, and guardianship and advocacy for people that are basically slipping through the cracks in modern health care. It's really frightening. Um, medical error in America is the third leading cause of death. Mm -hmm. That's just 
shocking. And it has not gotten any better. If anything, it's gotten a little bit worse in the last 10 years. And to me, it's common sense. You take nurses and doctors away from the patient's bedside, you are not going to get safer patient care. (laughs) Absolutely. I talk about this all the time. Um, During this time, during your tenure as a nurse, what is the biggest obstacle you saw that stood in the way of patient care that centered specifically around heart? And it sounds like this doctor was a classic case of that, but maybe you have a different answer. Well, to me, taking care of patients has always been a matter of the heart. I love people. I use common sense. In the modern day of healthcare, with all the clinicians looking over their shoulder to make sure they're not going to get sued for anything, they sometimes forget to realize that if you just do the right thing out of care and concern, and that's what you would do if it was your mom lying in that bed, you know, things would get so much simpler. But unfortunately, the documentation and the lawyers and the lawsuits, it's just got everybody in healthcare scared. Doctors are constantly afraid of angry patients and families, and they just really need to sit and listen and think what is the right thing to do and spend some time to explain things so that the family members can see that you care. They're actually teaching doctors in medical school now how to apologize when Mm -hmm. things go wrong because for many years doctors were taught, oh, never admit wrongdoing if there's medical error involved. But now they're teaching them to do it. And to me, that's sound advice because bad things happen. Even if you do everything right and sometimes you don't do everything right, you go in and sit down and show the family that you are grieved that things went wrong and you want to own up and take full responsibility for it. That's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But everybody's running around kind of covering their rear ends. <laughs> and things just go from bad to worse when there's a cover-up. I have a very good friend who who actually is a leader in patient advocacy now. He's head of the Greater National Advocates Group. He lost four limbs due to medical error. And he says... The cover-up is often worse than the crime. Mm-hmm. When they they do false documentation in charts to cover up the screw-ups, that's worse. And when he caught that, because he's a lawyer too, um, when he caught that sort of inadvertently, then that's where the, the serious lawsuit happened. Mm-hmm. Because when hospitals try to cover up their mistakes, things just go from bad to worse. The right thing to do The human thing to do is to go in and sit down and apologize and say, I messed up. I think it's been proven that people, patients, family members do not really want to go into the legal arena. They really don't want to initiate malpractice lawsuits. They just want somebody to own up to the fact that says, yes, something did go wrong. As you said, let's talk about it. But it's when they cover up and don't speak about it, then people get angry and think, well, I need to to prove a point here. So uh, I'm on the same page with you about having some heart and treating people as you would treat your very own mom. What about humor? What does humor mean to you when you think of humor in healthcare? Oh my gosh, it's so great. There are wonderful physiological effects and there's actually national organizations that teach and train people in humor therapy. I worked at a hospital once that had a mind-body medicine team and they had laughter therapy. They would teach 
laughter yoga to family members who had somebody in the hospital going through cancer treatment. They would uh, do drum therapy to help people work out their anger and aggression about what was going on. But there are so many wonderful effects. And, um, and it's good for the staff, too. Humor releases the tension and allows people to just take a deep breath, calm down. And I know many times with my patients in intensive care, going through a really hard time, you know, we would pull little practical jokes to get a chuckle out of them. On their birthday, we'd sometimes dress up and bring a cake in and sing off key and put funny hats on and, and everything. And that really shows that you care about somebody. You know, you get to know your patients very intimately as a nurse. And I think it's really important to release the tension. It's a scary, scary place in the hospital when you're going through a crisis. And sometimes just a little bit of humor can just let some of the air out of the balloon. (laughs) Absolutely. Especially for family members. I recall my mom was in the hospital for four months. And when she was in intensive care, there was one nurse who was on her floor, maybe just one time, but she made it a point to come in every single day. She stood at the door and she did, my mom's name was Josephine. She did what she called the Josephine dance. And she'd stand there and kind of wiggle. She'd go, Josephine, 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 fiend, fiend. I mean, and I would laugh at my mom, you know, even though she was bound and gagged with ventilators and everything, you could just see a little twinkle in the eye. I always remember that. And to me, it was just just a highlight of the day. So yeah, not to take mm-hmm. yourself so seriously and share that with the patients and their family. I think it's a beautiful thing. It could lighten the, oh, it's lighten the day. So beautiful. And there are some pretty dark situations in hospitals. Humor really reaches people at a very intimate level. It's like a way of saying, I get you, you know, you're a funny guy. <laughs> I know you're somebody besides what I see in this bed. So you try to get to know people and their past and appreciate their sense of humor. And people feel like you know them. And everybody wants to be known, really. Every human being has this deep inner need to be truly known and valued as a human being. Yes, absolutely. Oh, this is a good conversation. You mentioned something before about how healthcare providers just have so much back-end work and paperwork to do. And mm-hmm. I, I remember one time a nurse came up to me during my mom's stay and started crying. And she actually hugged me and she said, I can't help your mom. I'm tied to all of this paperwork and I'm the only RN on the floor. So sometimes the pressures and the focus of the business side that providers face can result in decisions mm-hmm. and, and care that do not necessarily benefit the patient. And I know from this that providers may not like this either. So what are your thoughts on how to improve this? Well, I think we're long overdue in getting a more efficient set of documentation in the hospital. People have been so afraid for so many years about missing something. And the mantra in hospitals is, if you don't chart it, it didn't happen. And that is just not true. It's absolutely not true. But people are so afraid of missing something like years down the line, I'm going to be called in and give testimony on this case. And I'll tell you what, I was an intensive care nurse for 39 years, and I never once got even close to being in a lawsuit because mm-hmm. I always did the right thing, mm-hmm. you know, and it wasn't always popular sometimes with um, 
with the higher-ups or um, even doctors sometimes. But I just always tried to search my heart and my conscience and, and do the right thing and speak up. And patients that are sick in the hospital, they can't speak up for themselves. I mean, let's face it, I have a job today simply because there aren't enough people out there to effectively advocate in the kind of healthcare system that America has developed mm -hmm. right now. There's so many silos, so many gaps, and people that are sick are just too sick to advocate for themselves. They're not looking to scan the horizon for danger. They're kind of curled up in a ball on the bed thinking about their pain and their grief and their heartache and they're attached to tubes, like you said, and everything. They're just too weak to advocate for themselves. So in a perfect um, world, nobody would need their own patient advocate. But I see families really staying around the clock a lot of times now, and that never happened 40-some yep. um, years ago when I was was just getting out of nursing school. Everybody just trusted healthcare. Just take mom to the hospital, go back to work. They'll call me if there's a problem. Mm -hmm. But today they're camping at the bedside. A lot of hospital rooms have a couch that turns into a bed so that family members can sleep at the bedside. Mm -hmm. In fact, a few um, months ago, my mother-in-law was seriously ill, and I slept in her room 24-7 yep. for four days. And um, I was not going to leave her. And in the middle of the night, she'd get confused on pain meds and get up and try to get out of the recliner and try to trip over things and fall and break something. And, and I was there. And you have to do that today sometimes to give the best care to your loved one. Absolutely. I know that firsthand as well. But there is a demographic that can't speak up for themselves, perhaps, and don't have anyone to advocate for them. And you talk about senior orphans. And, mm. I, and I love those words because it's a shocking twosome. Those words don't sound like they should go together. Who are senior orphans and how can we reach this demographic? What can be done to help them? Well, that's a great question, Pat. Some people are offended by that term. There are other euphemisms. Some people call them solo agers, whatever. But I think senior orphan really captures who we're talking about. Those are people with nobody to care for them and their family. And it's not always people that have no family, though it often is. But sometimes, like last week, I, I got a couple of new patients with serious health problems. And their daughter, who happens to be a lawyer, lives in Rhode Island. So the dad suddenly had to have open heart surgery and um, they both needed to be transitioned to a long-term care facility and the daughter is in danger of losing her job from taking too much time off work. So those are the people that often hire us to work on their behalf and do all the things that they would do, but we do them more efficiently because we know where the good resources are in the community. We know how to talk to healthcare providers. We know the right questions to ask. We know how to interpret labs and everything because we're all advanced level nurses. So we take a lot of stress off families that are far away. And then you have seniors that just, they never got married, never had kids. They were an only child. I mean, this is a huge growing demographic in our, our country right now. And frankly, the U.S. does not have a good plan for, for how to take care of these people. And a lot of them are ending up in nursing homes in Medicaid beds. And it's just shameful.
shameful in some states, the state of affairs in nursing homes that are taking mostly Medicaid patients. It's just the saddest thing in the world. So my goal is to keep people out of nursing homes and let them age the way they want to. And a lot of that depends upon um, their financial sustainability factors, but we talk to people about that too. We say based on your income and your savings, these are probably the most um, viable options for you. And here are some really good resources. And if you want, I'll set up um, some tours. Or if you want to stay home with 24-hour caregivers, you can afford that for X number of years. But not everybody has the resources to pay for 24-hour home care providers. Um, That can be more expensive than skilled nursing facilities. So it's very complex. So we work a lot with attorneys. And um, sometimes we get involved in guardianship cases. If there's no power of attorney and we meet seniors that have dementia and they don't even have capacity to make their own decisions anymore, then we have no choice but to go and ask the courts to award us guardianship so we can take care of them. All those kinds of things that a son or daughter should be doing, but a lot of these poor folks don't have any sons and daughters. Again, saw that firsthand in several rehab facilities where my mom was, where these poor folks are wheeled in to eat meals, obviously cannot eat without assistance. Nobody assists them. They don't eat. They get wheeled back to their room, you know, and I'm screaming, hey, Mrs. Smith didn't eat. Well, I'm sorry. I got to go do this. So yes, it's, it's, it's a sad situation. That's another topic for another show, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You and I can go on and on. There's a lot to talk about. Well, we're going to begin to wrap up. Is there anything that we missed that you feel that you wanted to speak about today? I would just really encourage our listeners to look into some of the professional advocacy organizations out there. The Alliance of um, Professional Healthcare Advocates, APHA, is a really good one. And um, all you have to do is put your zip code in there and they bring up all the advocates in your area. The National Association of Healthcare Advocacy Consultants is out there. Same thing, they have a database. And also the Aging Life Care Association that's made up of advocates, nurses, care managers, some call themselves um, care managers, some are social workers, but there's a wide variety of um, different um, ways of searching for someone in your area, even if you're in a rural area. So that website is alca.com. And um, of course, if you're in the Chicagoland area, look up North Shore Patient Advocates or my new company, Nonprofit Seniors Alone, Guardianship and Advocacy Services, and we will be happy to help. Excellent, excellent. Thank you, Terry. And what is your website again? Um, www.seniorsalone.org okay. is the nonprofit company, and that's, that's where I think people should look. But they can also look at um, North Shore RN also. That's the private company. All righty. Well, my friend, any final words of wisdom for either patients, providers, family members, or all three before we head out? Well, I just applaud everybody that's out there in the trenches doing this really hard work. And you can't do it on your own forever. So ask for help. And Pat, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Terry. Thank you so much, too. Thank you. 
Listen to Pat Rulo and Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio. Stay safe from little-known healthcare and hospital hazards. To learn more, go to speakupandstayalive.com. That's speakupandstayalive.com.